to another episode of season six. You sprang a surprise on me, Jim, in our last episode with your unpopular opinion about the shape of bagels. And I was very disappointed about <laughs> your opinion on that. I'm sure you've had lots of feedback. Uh, enormous amount of feedback, Ollie. And all of it, I'm afraid to say, has been unremittingly negative. <laughs> I'm astonished by the number of people who have leapt to the defense of the bagel. I'm not in the least surprised. It is it is a glorious item of food, and you were always going to lose the argument. Well, I, I think my position has been misunderstood. I mean, I'm actually very fond of bagels. I eat them frequently. <laughs> my point was about the practical difficulties associated with their shape. But the ferocious defense of the bagel has, has intimidated me. I, mean, I was going to give unpopular opinions about the NHS, Harry Potter, modern Christian songs, France, but fear has struck me dumb. I, I mean, I nearly get cancelled over bagel hate speech, so I shall not enrage the mob anymore. <laughs> A petition to shut down the Equip Project podcast. But you've got to give us at least one more, Jim. Please tell us another unpopular opinion. Well, I shall go for something that most people don't care about. So here, here is my unpopular opinion. Are, are you ready? I'm ready. Television has ruined classical music. Okay, niche, <laughs> niche, but for you, not surprising. But safe, Ollie. <laughs> safe, safe. You see, 40 years ago, no one cared what a classical musician looked like. People went to concerts to hear music. But television has given us that ghastly moment known as the close-up shot, and that's brought a whole generation of what I can only describe as theatrical lunatics to the fore. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Nigel Kennedy, Yo-Yo Ma, or the quite mad Caroline Campbell. I mean, they've started wearing leather trousers. They grimace and throw their heads back to portray artistic angst. And they all end up looking like middle-aged pop stars. So my solution is that all concerts broadcast on TV should show the musical score with an occasional long shot of the orchestra, but no close-ups of the soloists. And that would allow me to open my eyes again. Okay. Wow, Jim, I think I, there's a reason why you didn't go into TV and film production, um, <laughs> because I'm not sure it would be thrilling. Um, and I'm still petitioning you on a regular basis to to film our Equip podcast. Um, so I'm hoping I'll get you over the line on that. At that some will stage. never happen. <laughs> I'll have to do it covertly. <laughs> um, in this series, we've been doing something a little bit different, and we've been discussing the big ideas behind some of the key books of the Bible. And in our last episode, we thought about the little book of Philippians, and it's only four chapters long, and it was a really helpful uh, discussion. This week, though, we're going to tackle one of the longest books in the Bible, and it's the prophecy of Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah is 66 chapters long. It's been called the Romans of the Old Testament. But the truth is that most preachers like me just dip into it. You know, there's chapter 9's promise of the Messiah. That's read in most carol services. Then there's Isaiah's vision of the Holy One in chapter 6. And uh, as is the beautiful poetry about creation in chapter 40. And of course, most of us could recite chapter 53 from memory. But there are huge swathes of the book that we rarely go near. A few years ago, in an increasingly desperate attempt to get the text into my head, I purchased the audio Bible. Uh, the actor David Suchet, you know, the man who plays Hercule Poirot and all those Agatha Christie episodes, he has recorded the entire Bible. Now, fortunately, he doesn't read it in that outrageous Belgian accent. <laughs> anyway, I played this thing on the computer in my kitchen, and the first six chapters of Isaiah were riveting. But when I woke up, David Suchet was reading from chapter 29. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't concentrate because it was difficult to see any thought flow. But having, you know, spent 
a few months uh, looking at the book, I now think there is a coherent flow. Uh, in fact, I think there's a beautiful structure, but I, I will not be torturing anyone uh, with structure in this conversation. One obvious feature of the book is that it is divided in two. And at the very center of the prophecy, there's what we might call a historical bridge. There's a bit of narrative in, in chapters 36 and 37. And then there's a second bit of narrative in chapters 38 and 39. That's right. The historical material is clearly laid out in a symmetrical fashion. And so the two big blocks you have just mentioned both deal with King Hezekiah. Hezekiah makes a big prayer in, in each of those two sections. The first one after the Assyrians have arrived uh, and the second one before the Babylonians arrive. And the interesting thing is that in his interaction with the Assyrians, Hezekiah is magnificent. That's in you know, 36, 37. His faith is amazing. But in the second story, he is terrified of dying. And he doesn't behave at all well uh, in that second narrative in 38 through 39. So that gives us a clue about what Isaiah is up to. It, it's one thing to trust God in this life. But what about the problem of death? What's the point of anything if death is the end? We'll return to that historical bridge later on in the conversation, Jim. But what is the big idea in the first part of the book? So in, in chapters 1 to 35, what's the big idea? Okay, well, look, there are many ways we could survey the book. But one interesting way is to begin with the idea that Isaiah is the greatest apologist who has ever lived. In other words, the prophet has put together a profound analysis of the human condition and a defense of God's plan to redeem humanity. So that, that's how I'm going to, 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 the lens I'm going to use. So in the first five chapters, the prophet asks us to consider the realities of the world in which we live. The mess we are in is a moral mess. Okay. So Judah's problems, they weren't financial. They weren't educational. And like Judah, our societies are riddled with corruption and injustice. So Isaiah's point is that humanity's problem is a moral problem. And he finishes this introductory section by painting two contrasting pictures, each representing a destiny for his culture and, and ours. The first picture is this beautiful vision of a righteous community that lives in harmony with God. But the second is this utterly bleak, hopeless description of a culture that's lost because of its rejection of God. So Isaiah begins the book by describing two possible destinations for his culture and ultimately for every culture. So if we are to achieve the beautiful vision of a righteous community that lives in harmony with God, what is his strategy then? I'm going to suggest that in the first part of the book, he sets out a threefold plan. Okay. So first, Isaiah says God will establish a new kind of kingdom. It won't be like the kingdoms of this world. And that's the topic covered in chapters 6 through 12. But the idea of a new kingdom leads to an obvious question. How will this new kingdom win? How will it supersede the kingdoms of the world? And that brings us to Isaiah's second big step, and that's the concept of atonement. The problem of man's rebellious sin cannot be swept under the carpet. There has to be judgment, says Isaiah. But in chapters 13 through 27, Isaiah introduces this new concept that somehow God's judgment will allow atonement for our sins to be made. Atonement achieved through divine judgment. Somehow, we're not quite sure yet at this stage how, but somehow it will tear down proud humanity's power structures and it will allow God to establish a new city of God where people can live fruitful lives in his presence. Okay, so in step one, God sets up a new kind of kingdom using his Messiah. And in step two, 
he somehow uses divine judgment to achieve atonement. And it is that atonement that allows the messianic kingdom to replace the kingdoms of this world. What then is the third and final step? Well, if you think about it, we're still left with a problem. I mean, let's imagine that God succeeds in creating this new kingdom and superseding the kingdoms of this world. But would any of us want to live in it? Would we want to? So the third step described in chapters 28 through 35 involves the transformation of individual people's minds so that they want to live in the new kingdom. And that transformation, says Isaiah, comes about when God reveals himself to individuals. So we could summarize his three steps as follows. A restored kingdom through the Messiah, atonement through judgment, and transformation through revelation. You said earlier that Isaiah was a great apologist, but his strategy is very different from the likes of William Lane Craig, isn't it? Most apologists start with arguments about God as creator, and then they move on from there. Yes, right. I mean, it's very strange. Isaiah doesn't start to talk about God as creator until chapter 40. He actually begins with that famous scene in chapter 6, and that is the foundation on which his entire argument rests. Let's read a few verses from chapter 6 then. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That amazing vision of God's holiness illustrates what I'm calling the foundational idea in Isaiah. Ultimate reality is moral. Okay, Behind everything in the universe, there is a personal moral God. Now think about that for a moment. God as a personal and moral being is more basic than God as creator. So before we even think about God as creator, we need to understand him as the source of all that is morally beautiful, the source of justice and kindness and love and truth. So imagine that every single thing that God has created just somehow disappeared. Okay. So imagine all of physical reality implodes, the stars, the planets, every ocean, every atom that makes up our bodies. Imagine that the whole of creation just vanished. God would still be a personal and moral being. He would still be the source of all that is truly real and valuable. Now, if that is true, it follows logically that humanity's only positive future lies in a harmonious relationship with this morally perfect God. A future founded on a rejection of him must end in disaster because no creaturely lie can survive in a contest with that which is ultimately real. A cynic might say that all Isaiah has done so far is set out a theory. A morally perfect God could establish a kingdom. He could provide atonement that will allow this new kingdom to supersede worldly kingdoms, and he could transform individual people through revelation. But so far, Isaiah's three-step strategy seems like nothing more than a theory. Well, the answer to your imaginary cynic comes in part two of the book. The historical bridge we, we talked about earlier is the pivot that turns all our thinking around. So um, <clears throat> let me just take a moment and summarize the, the narrative in those chapters. So the historical context is that Jerusalem has been besieged by the Assyrians. 
and the Assyrian field commander, or Rabshaka to give him his Assyrian title, he makes this chilling speech and is designed to get Hezekiah to surrender. Now, the Rabshaka is a real atheist. He doesn't believe in any gods at all. Okay, he talks about all the gods of the other nations he's conquered and exposes the truth that idols are nothing. Look, Hezekiah, he says in effect, your god is just like all the other gods that I have knocked over. They're nothing but ideas and a few shrines. The only real thing in life is power. I have it, you don't, so surrender. And that's real moral nihilism, isn't it? The only real thing in life is power. All talk about morality, about the value of justice and goodness, of love and kindness, those are just empty words. The only real thing is power. And Hezekiah is magnificent in the way he stands up to that sort of atheism. I mean, his prayer in chapter 36 is a wonderful example of faith. So we're left wondering why he then behaves so badly in chapters 38 through 39. And the answer is that he has a near-death experience. And he is terrified of dying. And Isaiah uses Hezekiah's fear of death to raise perhaps the biggest question of all. What's the point of trusting God in this life if we all just slip into oblivion after death? But now your point about chapter 6 becomes crucial, because if ultimate reality is moral, if that is even more basic than creation itself, then God is more basic than death. And so we can rethink everything using the foundation of chapter 6. Life isn't absurd because God is more basic than death, more basic than all of creation. God is an eternal moral person who exists in a different category from space and time. And that realization is almost like a Copernican revolution in our thinking. If God is as Isaiah describes him, then it follows that he has the ability to orchestrate history. He is the Lord of time, after all. And so, in part two of the book, Isaiah reframes all of history as God's story of salvation. And if I'm reading the book correctly, he retraces the three steps we talked about in part one, but in reverse order. So I see part two as the historical actualization, the realization of the plan outlined in part one. As Christians, our ears might prick up because God's plan is realized through the work of a mysterious figure, simply called the servant. Yes, the servant enters into history to reveal God's heart as a loving redeemer. So his first step is to reveal the very heart of God. And chapter 42 contains these lovely words. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The New Testament writers use that quote to describe the character of Jesus Christ. And we know that it is that revelation of the divine character which has transformed countless millions of rebels, changing us so that we desire to live within the kingdom of God. We're, we're in chapters 40 through 48 at this point, okay? And it's, it's here that Isaiah really shows the brilliance of his apologetics. He contrasts the servant with man-made idols. And one of my favorite bits of the Bible, he tells a story. He tells a story about a man who constructs an idol. And the man gets a log and saws it in half. And he uses the left-hand bit for firewood to keep himself warm and cook a meal. And he uses the right-hand bit to form an idol. Okay, And once he's made the idol, he falls down and worships it. And Isaiah's brilliant point is that the man's choice was completely arbitrary. 
He could have used the left-hand bit of wood to make his idol and burned the right-hand bit as firewood. Now, what a message that is to our culture. We live in a society which teaches young adults that they can invent meaning for themselves. Meaning they're told is not encountered, it is invented. But the problem is that whatever meaning I invent is going to be completely arbitrary. I chose this, but it could have been that. It turns out that the transcendent cannot be manufactured from the mundane. It's the transcendent God, the Holy One of chapter 6, who works invisibly to direct the course of history. In chapters 49 to 54, we come to the most famous section of the book, when we see the suffering servant achieve a global atonement by bearing God's judgment on our behalf. Israel had failed as God's servant because of their sin. Isaiah describes their failure in chapters 13 to 27. But this mysterious servant, who is now revealed to be divine himself, makes atonement by taking the punishment we deserve on himself. Yeah, at the end of chapter 53, we learn that death wasn't the end for the servant. He lives after his death. And then in chapters 55 through 65, we see the servant establish an eternal kingdom that's based on righteousness and justice. So the servant, by the time we get to this point, has realized the three-step plan described in part one of the book. Now, the power of the historical argument is astonishing, Ollie. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ came. So there is now indisputable proof that history is God's salvation story. I mean, anyone can read Isaiah's three big arguments and see that they have unfolded in real history. So the prophet has given us an utterly compelling apologetic for the gospel. I suppose the point I'm making here is that we shouldn't just grab a few bits of the book from you know chapters 9 and 11 and 53 to use in our apologetics. We should pan the camera back and see that the entire gospel is argued from first principles and then realized in history. In the final chapters, Isaiah springs a wonderful surprise. It's really curious that in the final chapters, we don't meet the Messianic king. Surely, as we read about the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of light, we're going to see the beauty of the king, we think. But there is no golden chariot whizzing by. There's no talk of a secure palace. But at the very center of the last section, we do meet someone, someone who says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Isaiah's great surprise. The Messiah is the servant. So the big reveal has happened. We now see that the one described as wonderful counselor and mighty God, God with us, is the humble servant. So we can summarize the second half of the book in New Testament language. Christ comes into this idolatrous world. He dies at the hand of the kings of this earth. But through that journey, he achieves atonement, allowing him to establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness. And now he calls us to unite with him in his death and resurrection so that we can leave the wicked values of this world behind and join him in the new Jerusalem, in the eternal city of light. So we can trust God, not just for this life, but for all eternity. Thank you, Jim. As we close, I want to highlight once again the Equip Live event that we're having on the 30th of October at 7 p.m. at Crescent Church in Belfast. On that evening, we're going to be addressing the topic, What's Wrong with the World? And we'd also love you to ask lots of questions. So do come along and bring your friends. The event won't be ticketed. So please just show up at 7 p.m. on the 30th of October. 
Until then, have a great week.